Let's stand together, brothers and sisters, for the reading of God's Word. We continue forward in the book of Acts. We're still in chapter 18. We'll be looking at verses 9 through 11. And isn't it appropriate, uh, this text and the central message that Christ is with us. Please listen carefully because this is God's holy and infallible word. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. And he came to them, so because he was afraid of the, because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for by occupation they were tent makers. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. When they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshipped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed and were baptized. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. Do not be afraid, but speak, and do not keep silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. And he continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. When Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat, saying, This fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. And when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews, there would be reason why I should bear with you. But if it is a question of words and names in your own law, look to it yourselves, for I do not want to be the judge of such matters. And he drove them from the judgment seat. And then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. But Gallio took no notice of these things. And thus ends the reading of God's word. Amen. 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 Please be seated. So sinful fear is a, a fruit of idolatry in our hearts. Sinful fear is a fruit of idolatry in our hearts. But godly awe and reverence, godly fear, are a fruit of worshiping and loving God. And when we prioritize our own well-being above the Lord's honor and glory, like I think Paul may have been tempted to do, multiple problems can occur in our lives. You see, selfish fear clouds our reason, creating confusion in our minds. Selfish fear also drains our zeal for the Lord, so our minds and our hearts are made sick by fear. And this confused and lukewarm state of fear can lead to that fight-or-flight response, where we might go silent when we should speak, or perhaps we might lash out when we should patiently listen. Paul had numerous reasons to fear for his personal safety at Corinth. Paul had publicly forsaken the blaspheming Jews and had shaken his garments. He'd left the synagogue. And the Lord had recently saved Crispus and many other Corinthians, and there were baptisms. So in prior cities, as I'm sure you recall, this was the time when the Jews would typically stir up dangerous mischief against Paul. Now, in today's text, we read of Jesus, our Lord, speaking to Paul by night to comfort him, to guide him, and to encourage him unto continued faithfulness. So, brothers and sisters, may this sermon today also be a way the Lord speaks to each one of us as we deal with our own fears, our confusion, and our own tepid hearts. Let us hear Christ's word for us today, that we may keep our hands to the plow unto more wise and affectionate faithfulness to Christ our Savior and our Lord. Perhaps even now, if we're honest with ourselves, 
we'll be able to identify some fears and some idols in our own hearts that you might have in mind as you listen to today's sermon and consider these truths for your own life. So the title is Christ is with us. We'll review the current situation in Corinth there for Paul. We'll see the Lord Jesus speaking to him uh, at nighttime by a vision. We'll see Christ's commandment to Paul to not be afraid and not keep silent. These prohibitions that he gives to Paul. And we'll see the commandment, the positive commandment for Paul instead to speak. Which gets to boldness for Paul to take courage and speak. And then we'll see reasons for courage that uh, Christ gives to Paul. That Christ is with him. Christ is with us. Christ is his shield and defender. He is our shield and defender. Christ is the cornerstone of his church. He builds his church then and now. And we see the results in Paul's life. His perseverance in preaching and teaching. He continues to do the work of an evangelist and to make disciples. And so can we. And as usual, some questions for us to examine ourselves in light of these truths, to know and love and obey God more in our lives. So first of all, a review of the current situation in Corinth. I'm sure you recall this is toward the end of the second missionary journey, or somewhere around 80, 50, or 51. And so Paul's team is back together. You recall they've been separated. So Paul and Silas and Timothy are now back together in Corinth. And this is a very large and important city, you recall, probably over 200,000 people. And they've received these good reports about the churches in Macedonia from Timothy and Silas. So the team is encouraged. Now, prior to this, Paul had been working and living with new Christian friends that he met there providentially when God encouraged him with the refreshing hospitality and work that he got to do with Aquila and Priscilla, this married couple who are also tent makers. And so Paul met up with them, was able to be refreshed and even restore his finances a bit as he worked. But then after his team was put back together by the Lord, he was pressed in his spirit. He was compelled by the Lord to testify to the Jews that Jesus is the Messiah. And then the Jews, uh, as usual, blasphemed and opposed the gospel. At this point, Paul shakes his garments off against them and he departs from the synagogue. He goes to the Gentile, making it Gentiles, making it clear to them that he has done his duty as a watchman to warn them of the coming judgment. Now, at this point in time, the Lord continues to bless Paul with opportunities to preach. He has this man Justice, who we're told is a, a worshiper of God. So he's not just he's not quite a Jew, but he's not quite a Gentile. He's on his way. He's a God fearer, and he's got a house right there next to the synagogue, and he invites Paul to come and preach the gospel there. And then, the good news continues there, Crispus is saved. Now Crispus is the head of this same synagogue filled with these blaspheming and hateful Jews. And he's the head of the synagogue and he is born again and all his household also believe, we're told. So this is quite a major noteworthy gospel event there in that city. And it wasn't just Crispus and his household, but many Corinthians go on to believe and to be baptized so the Lord has been doing a great work there in Corinth, even amid very significant resistance to Paul and the gospel by the Jews. So that's where we are at this time. So the Lord Jesus comes and speaks to Paul in the night by, by a vision. The text tells us, now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. What is meant here by a vision? Well, it's a sight divinely granted in an ecstasy or in a sleep. It's called a vision. The same word was used by Jesus to describe what Peter, James, and John experienced on the Mount of Transfiguration. It's also the same word used to describe Moses and the burning bush by Stephen in Acts chapter 7, and also Ananias' vision from Christ that he's to go to Paul, and Cornelius' angelic vision to send for Peter, and then Peter's heavenly vision of the great sheet filled with all kinds of animals when God undid that portion of the old ceremonial law. It's also the same word used of the vision of the man of Macedonia when God similarly led Paul in a very extraordinary and miraculous way. And it's interesting to consider this. This vision we see in Acts 12.9 is distinguished from that which is, quote, real. When Paul, after he's delivered from the prison, he's trying to understand what has happened 
in this miraculous delivery. He's out of the jail. He's with the angel. The text says, Then the angel said to him, Gird yourself and tie on your sandals. And so he did. And he said to him, Put on your garment and follow me. So he went out and followed him and did not know that what was done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. So a vision like this can be difficult to distinguish from what is happening in the world around us in this realm. So likely what is happening is the veil between this realm and heaven is peeled back for a moment. And we're given a glimpse into that which is occurring there uh, and perhaps not occurring here. So Paul wasn't sure at that time. So he's given this vision of Christ. Did he see Jesus seated on his throne? Uh, We don't know, do we, exactly what he saw. We know Stephen saw Christ on his throne. And also I think it's uh, helpful to contrast Paul's vision to what happened in verse 5 where he was compelled by the Spirit to testify to the Jews. Two different kinds of guidance. You see, the prior compelling, it was an inward work, wasn't it? An inward movement of the Spirit where Paul was pressed to declare the gospel to the Jews. In today's text, though, instead of an inner work of the Spirit, the Lord Jesus speaks to Paul by a vision that he can somehow perceive with his sight and his hearing. And we know the Lord Jesus, he provided Paul exactly what he needed at that time to know the Lord's will. And it's not uh, 100% clear, but it's almost certain that this word here, Lord, the Lord, is referencing Christ himself. Commentary says the Lord should be understood as a reference to the risen and exalted Christ whose words are given in direct speech, a fact that highlights their significance. So we continue to see that the book of Acts, it's not really the Acts of the Apostles, is it? It's the ongoing Acts of Jesus Christ himself. He did his Acts on the earth before he was crucified, at his crucifixion. He was resurrected from the dead. He continued his works during 40 days when he taught them about the kingdom of God. And then he was ascended to God's right hand where he's continuing his works in his church then up into this day. This occurred during the night. Now, possibly this was a dream, but the Greek words for a dream are not used here. There are Greek words available to get across the idea of a dream. So it seems like he was awake and he had this vision in the night. So what about us today? Well, while the Lord Jesus Christ may grant such direct guidance to us, his people still today, he is God after all. Nevertheless, if we are walking with Him and seeking His glory, instead of insisting upon extraordinary visions, we can trust His promise to lead us by His ordinary means, by His Word and by His Spirit. Paul says this to the Romans in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. You see the pure heart. A heart free of idolatry that's being described here. Or being made pure. That's the foundation of finding God's will. Paul goes on and says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Do you hear that? Do you hear what Paul promises to the Romans? That you may be able to prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. This word prove here means to recognize as genuine after examination. This is available to the Roman Christians then and to us now. Christ leads us, his people, according to our needs, day by day. So question, in your life now, are you dealing with difficulties, with fears that might be bringing confusion into your mind and or lukewarmness into your heart? That's what idolatry does. Idolatry messes up our minds and our hearts. The answer, what is the answer? It's to walk in the Spirit, having our minds renewed by God's Word, that we may be more transformed into Christ's likeness. And that transformation gets to the wholeness of our being. Our minds, our affections, our wills, our discernment being transformed. But first, our minds have to be renewed freed from deceptions and brought into the truth. What happens when we're transformed like this? Jesus dwells in us to where we think his thoughts. We love what he loves. We do what 
he would do. We walk in his courage and his boldness. And then, when this is happening, he will make us able to examine options and recognize his genuine will day by day. So Jesus goes on, and, and Jesus appears to him. He's there, and he begins to speak to him. He tells him not to be afraid and not to keep silent. Jesus says, this is the voice of Jesus that Paul hears, do not be afraid, but speak, and do not keep silent. Focusing on the prohibitions first here. The Lord Jesus gives Paul a direct set of imperatives in the negative. So these are prohibitions. And he commands Paul not to be afraid. We know that this commandment not to be afraid occurs frequently throughout Scripture. Jesus is pointing to Paul's inner world, likely beginning to churn. We've had those inner churnings, all of us have. And he speaks against any brewing storm that might be in Paul's soul. Peace, be still, is what Jesus said to the storm. And he's saying the same thing to Paul's soul. So something inside of Paul was probably fearful or tempted towards fear at that moment. What's likely in view here are the Jewish threats. That's likely what's on Paul's mind at this time. Especially given that shortly after this, Jesus says, no one will attack you to hurt you. He gives him that specific promise. So this fear that's present in Paul's life, or may be present, linked to some kind of idolatry that was in his heart, the perhaps worship of your own security or your own safety, that same idol which plagued our world for the last three to four years. The devil always plays on our idols and brings the deceptions, timed deceptions, to guide us away from Christ and into the world of fear and silence. So the, the concern here is that Paul would be sinfully silent, <clears throat> cowardice instead of faithful action. So Jesus goes on and commands him not to keep silent. He tells him, don't be afraid. But then he goes on, he says, and don't keep silent. You can see they're connected here. So perhaps Paul was considering a time of silence to let things simmer down a bit. It was, seemed eminently reasonable, did it not? Perhaps Paul was even considering leaving Corinth before the Jewish resistance even began. You can see how these things would have seemed very reasonable to him. I want us to note a few things about sinful fear. First of all, sinful fear looks at, focuses upon the threats of this world instead of upon Christ. That's the first thing that happens when, when we're being led about by our fears because of idolatry. And we need to see that this makes us very vulnerable to the devil's main tools deception and fear. And as I've said, we saw the madness, the, the mass global psychosis based on fear and idolatry that's occurred over the last three to four years and is still very deeply in place. Will you be impacted by that and other fears and deceptions that are put to use by the father of lies, the one who's been present in this earth since the beginning against whom none of us can stand on our own? Next. Sinful fear seems completely rational based upon the threat focus. Okay, so, so when you are giving way to your idols and to fear, it will seem absolutely rational at the time because you'll look at the threat and you'll just get into threat management scenarios. Next, not only our thinking is messed up, but it will feel normal for us to fear. It'll be difficult then to discern that from godly fear from real reverence. And, you know, it is odd to be told not to have a particular emotion, a particular feeling, because that's a part of this commandment. And it just shows us how much we need to be rewired, how much we have been steeped in a world of fear and idolatry and been trained to have these automatic responses of fear that we feel. But God can transform us so that we can be like Christ who never had ungodly fear. He never had sinful fear. And when this happens to us, sinful fear will cause us to forget about Christ. We will forget about His presence. We will forget about His power. We will forget about His promises when we focus on the threats. 
And so it will get confused and it will we will make our unfaithfulness seem reasonable in our minds. And, and you know, you can imagine conversations where brothers and sisters, we might be encouraging one another to see things a different way. Those caught up in sinful fear will find such kind of counsel as irrational and unreasonable. So, so we need to see this is something that self-deception, recall self-deception, is one of the key marks of, of our sin nature, is self-deception. Next, sinful fear causes us to seek merely human solutions. So we don't even consider God's power and His presence and His promises right in the moment when we need Him the most. We're going to be looking for arm of the flesh solutions. We'll look at our bank account. We'll look at our possessions. We'll look at our reputation, blah, blah, blah. All the things that we have that we can use to leverage ourselves out of this situation. And it's, it's no good. It's just no good. And the Lord is kind to his people to bless us to fail in those situations. Um, because we need to rest in him. That's the path to joy. Now, Jesus still calls all of his beloved children not to be afraid and not to be cowardly with silence. And he still speaks peace into our souls, calming the storms within us as sure as he subdued the sea of Galilee's gales. In Mark 4, we have this account of what occurred there. On the same day when evening had come, he said to them, let us cross over to the other side. And when they had left the multitude, they took him along in the boat as he was. And other little boats were also with them. And a great windstorm arose. And the waves beat into the boat so that it was already filling. This is a great windstorm. We talked about that at the time at Luke when we looked at this. That could come up so quickly there. Where was Jesus? But he was in the stern, asleep on a pillow. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? You see how fear confuses us? Makes us think irrationally. Then Jesus arose and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. But he said to them, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? And they feared exceedingly and said one to another, Who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? So this is where we need to place our focus when we're going through life's difficulties and we... We experience those inner churnings. Now, see what happens, though, to sinful fear when confronted with Christ's presence and power and love. What happens to their fear? Gone. It vanishes away. And what replaces it? Well, by faith in Christ and who He is, it's replaced with the fear of God. Fear. Reverence. Awe. Worship of Christ. This is what happens. So it goes on as a part of this commandment here. And the great contrast is fear and silence on this side. But over here on this side is boldness and speaking. Boldness and speaking. So Jesus gives Paul a positive command in one word. Speak. And note this command to speak is contrasted with Paul's fear. So instead of being afraid and keeping silent... It's simple. Speak. So in this situation, Paul's path forward is very simple. Speak. And, we, and he knows what he's supposed to speak. And by inference, Jesus is commanding Paul to be bold, to take courage. There's no mention of boldness, but clearly that is what is in view. And it's another example, what happens, of answered prayer. All the way back to Acts chapter 4, about 20 years earlier. Recall the prayer of the church in Acts 4. Remember Peter and John? They've been imprisoned and threatened, severely threatened by the Sanhedrin. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, 
The place where they were assembled together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. So those things which can be shaken are shaken. But our souls are connected to Christ who cannot be shaken. And he speaks his peace into our souls as surely today as he did then for Paul. And Paul was given this boldness. So, a few things to note. Fear of God focuses upon Christ instead of the threats around us. This is an entire reorientation. An entire reorientation. Fear of God, reverence, awe, worship, love for God, it'll seem irrational to our flesh until our sinful fear vanishes. You've probably experienced this tug of war within you. And the fear of God, this worship of God, awe of Him, it will also feel unusual at first as our sinful fear is being driven away. Because we've been pickled, steeped, immersed, marinated in fear since we left the womb. And the fear of God, instead of forgetting Jesus, remembers and rests in Christ's presence and in His power and in His promises to us. What about our mind? Fear of God leads to clarity of thought and consistently rational decision-making. Okay? This is how our minds are protected, is by the love of God. And the fear of God causes us to look to Him and cry out to Him amid life's difficulties, dangers, and uncertainties. We don't just consider our own resources. We, we get to this point to where reflexively we're just calling out to God and we're counting on His almighty hand. And we leave it with Him. And finally, the fear of God totally disarms the devil so that we're no longer vulnerable to hell's lies and hell's terrors. We're no longer vulnerable, brothers and sisters, to hell's lies and hell's terrors when we live in the house of God's love and we've departed from the house of fear. So is there a place in your life where you've been sinfully silent? Where you have given way to fear of man and lost sight of Christ and his glory and love? Perhaps today you'll spot this and recall Christ and rest in him and trust more in him and take courage to be faithful to him. So you know, Christ is so kind to us. He, he can just give us commands, right? He, he can just tell us what to do and, and, and we obey because He is God and He made us. But He also gave us a mind and He gave us a heart and He gives us the precepts, if you will, to go with these commands. He's so kind to us to help us understand the commands that He's given to us that they are founded on His presence and on His love. So the first reason for courage that we're given, and it's the reason that Christmas is all about, is that He is Emmanuel. Christ is with us. Jesus tells Him, for I am with you. You see the word for? So everything Jesus just said, the fearlessness, the courage to speak in the midst of these threats, it all starts with the presence of Christ. Every fearful soul, brothers and sisters, first needs to know of Christ's presence. When we are afraid, do you know you're going to believe you're alone as well? And, and wow, you can just go into full panic mode at that point in time. And just your mind will just come untethered from reality. You'll start catastrophizing and imagining every worst kind of evil coming upon you. But instead... When God comes into our trembling souls by His Holy Spirit and touches us with the reality of His presence, He says to us, you are not alone, dear child. He says to us, I am with you. He says to us, I will never leave you or forsake you. He, he takes our thoughts to the cross. Consider well what your Savior did, did for you on the cross. Will He ever leave you or forsake you? Next, the author of Hebrews 
puts it this way. For he himself has said, so he's referencing something that was said by God. I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. You know, that's a three by five card verse right there. That's one for the fridge and the bathroom mirror. That can go on the dashboard of your car. That, that's, that we need that. We need that. And this, this is our armor, our sure refuge against the attacks of the devil and the, the ugliness and fear of our own sinful idolatry and rebellion. Now, we need to talk about God's love. We can't talk about fear and freedom from fear without talking about God's love, which we've already touched on through pondering Christ's death on the cross again. But really, Christ's presence, when he says, I'm with you, we need to see that he's bringing us into the infinite vastness of God's love surrounding us. Like we prayed at the beginning of the time of consecration, that God would grant to us to be rooted and grounded in love and to be able to comprehend with all the saints this vast, immeasurable, endless, oceanic universe of his love. We can never sound its depths. We can never exhaust it. So immersed fully in this world of God's love, no ungodly fear can break in upon us. 1 John 4, 17-19, the contrast is laid out here for us. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. So what is your greatest coming crisis moment that any human will ever face? Death and judgment. There's no greater crisis than the moment when each of us stand before God and all of who we are is unveiled before Him in perfect clarity and compared to His holy standards right there. There's no greater crisis moment in, in the life of any human being. So we can have boldness in that crisis moment. So we can have boldness in any moment. You see? Going on. Because as He is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment. So you see, fear has its root in, in the concern about hurting, about loss, about pain, misery. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. Now, brothers and sisters, it is so important that each one of us really connect with what's being said here. Remnant fear shows us the degree to which we have yet to be perfected in God's love. It is not normal or natural to have ungodly fear. It is a part of our sin nature, but we can't excuse it away by saying, well, you know, it's just, I'm human. No, every time this occurs in our lives, may we, may we spot it, and repent and say, Lord, something about me needs to be rewired so that I have Christ's response to this world. So ultimately, all earthly fear traces back to the fear of death, the fear of the coming day of judgment awaiting every soul. So being freed from fear of God's judgment by Christ's sacrifice upon the cross is the only path to a life free of fear in this world. And it ends up Instead of when bad things happening, we, we automatically fear. You know what the, the heart of the, the faith-filled person is? Gratitude. Gratitude. Gratitude, thankfulness, worship for every single thing that happens in our lives. Because God, does He not make all things, all things work to the good of those who are His? are called according to his purposes. Hebrews 2 puts it this way in terms of being feared from death and being freed from fear uh, the fear of death and judgment. It's a great Christmas verse too. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. So you see, Christ became flesh, born in Bethlehem, so that he could die. 
so that he could die. And that through his death, he would destroy the devil. So the devil has been destroyed by Christ's death. And along with the devil's destruction, he's destroyed the devil's power, which is death. And therefore, totally releasing us from the fear of death and from every other fear. Because all fears have their root in the fear of death and judgment. We went through this when we looked at Hebrews. You may recall. Oh, dear saints. Would you have your fears subdued today and every day? Can you imagine what a life freed from our sinful fear would look like? Well, then know the same comfort here and now that Paul knew some 2,000 years ago there in Corinth. Christ is with us, brothers and sisters. We are not alone. Matthew 1.23, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. He was with us when he walked the earth in the flesh. But when he left and was enthroned at God's right hand, he told us it would be better for us because now we have the Spirit. Now we have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. And he gives us an enlargement of our heart throughout the courses of our lives to know him and to experience him and to love him more and to have our fears washed away. Well, Connected with God's presence here, another reason for courage is that his presence brings his power. Christ is our shield and defender, the one who spoke all things into existence by his almighty word. He is the one who is with us. So Jesus not only comforts Paul with the promise of his glorious presence, but he goes on to comfort Paul with the power of God at work for him, promising Paul that that very protection of God himself There's no need for us to consider arm of the flesh remedies to our life's problems. They're so puny and meaningless anyways. I mean, really, recall Paul's prior sufferings at the hands of the Jews and consider, I mean, this is serious what he went through. He's been stoned nearly to death. Some commentaries say he may have even died and been resurrected when he was stoned. Talk about PTSD. Okay, He's been beaten with Roman rods, bruised and bloodied. We saw that at Philippi, didn't we? He was imprisoned there in the deep darkness of that that dungeon prison. So Paul needs to know the protection of God in his life. How have you suffered? What sufferings have you been through that fashion how you think about life and how you interpret life and, and keep you from looking to God's deliverance? You see, these are patterns of living. These are habits of thought that we develop over time that we need to be freed from. Surely Paul could say like David, and so can we, blessed be the Lord my rock who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle, my loving kindness and my fortress, my high tower and my deliverer, my shield and the one in whom I take refuge who subdues my people under me. So brothers and sisters, see here again the inseverable connection between God's love and God's protection for his beloved saints. So would you not only be freed from fear, but would you also have the boldness necessary to speak of Christ's glory in the midst of today's myriad lies and threats? Then receive these same promises for yourself today. For those who are in Christ, listen brothers and sisters, for those of you who are in Christ, God is with you, God loves you and always shall, and God will never allow any harm to come to you apart from his perfect will for you. We know that all things work together for, those to the, for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. All things, all things, all things. Now, this is very practical because some of us face threats in our workspace and things that we're not allowed to say, things that we're required to say. And what path will you choose? Will the idols of your heart, perhaps of materialism and wealth, control you so that you remain silent when you know God is calling you not to be silent? So that you don't act when you know that God is calling you to act? Beware, brothers and sisters, these forces are at work today and perhaps even more powerful and more widespread than what Paul 
encountered in Corinth. Next, we remember God's promises to us. We remember his presence. We remember his power. And we remember his promises. He is our cornerstone. Christ says it, for I have many people in this city. Jesus Christ has a plan for his church. He is the one who's building his church. Paul's not responsible for building God's church. Perhaps Paul was feeling overwhelmed at this point. Like, how can we manage all of this? Who's going to do all of this? Paul's just called to simple faithfulness, just like you and me, to complete the mission that Jesus gave him at the very beginning. Remember what it is? Paul is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel, for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Paul knew his mission. He knew what he was called to do. So Paul bears the name of Jesus to all the world, suffering for Christ's namesake along the way. And like him, not as apostles, but as fellow believers with him, we have a similar calling to bear Christ's name to those around us. And to do so expecting suffering for Christ's namesake. We're his ambassadors. We are those who are to carry his name everywhere we go prepared to suffer uh, and to expect to suffer uh, for all who are godly in Christ Jesus should expect to suffer, to, to suffer. Jesus knows his elect. He, those stones he's yet to carve, he's, he already knows their names. Jesus gathers in his elect. Jesus is the chief architect. Jesus is the chief cornerstone for his church, that he is building day by day. Jesus is the one who makes us from dead into living stones. So the promise to Paul is the same promise today. Jesus has his people everywhere in every tribe, tongue, and nation. And we serve Christ faithfully. We leave the building to him. We serve Christ faithfully. We leave the building to him. He, he will gather his stones. And he will build his church throughout the earth and he will build his church one little congregation or big or medium or whatever at a time he is the one who does this and we rejoice in this and he does this every day first peter puts it this way coming to him as to a living stone rejected indeed by men but chosen by god and precious you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to god through jesus christ see that's what we're doing here today We've been brought here to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Jesus builds his church. And he's reassuring Paul of that at this time to encourage him to continue in his mission. And he says the same thing to us today. We need to remember his presence, his love. His power, His sovereignty over all things that occur in our lives. And His promise to build His church. And so we just come together uh, all the time and we uh, offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now when we're together here and each day as we go through our lives, in our work, in our marriages, in our families, in, in our gardening, whatever the Lord is calling us to do that day, so we go on to results, and it's perseverance in preaching is what we see. He continued there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. So Paul heard the vision, vision and he, he believed it, and he obeyed. He stays in Corinth for 18 months, teaching God's word amidst the lost as an evangelist and unto the church, making disciples. That's what we do, right? We grow up together as we teach and admonish one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs as we encourage each other in the word. We are being sanctified together, growing up as those who follow Christ, follow Christ together. And along the way, we have opportunity to share the gospel with the lost, to evangelize them, to explain the gospel to them like we had a great opportunity to do here at Country Manor uh, on Thursday. What a joy it was. We make disciples and we preach to the lost. All of it from God's word. Commentary says, For the bringing in of those that were without, 
Christ had many people there, and by the power of his grace, he could have had them all converted in one month or one week as at the first preaching of the gospel in Jerusalem, when thousands were enclosed at one cast of the net. But God works in various ways. The people Christ has at Corinth must be called in by degrees, some by one sermon, others by another, for the building up of those that were, were, were within. So that was for those without and those within. Those that are converted have still need to be taught the word of God, in particular need at Corinth to be taught it by Paul himself. And if you've read the first and second Corinthians, you know what Matthew Henry's talking about here. For no sooner was the good seed sown in that field than the enemy came and sowed tares. The false apostles, those deceitful workers of whom Paul and his epistles to the Corinthians complained so much. So think about it. If the new Corinthian believers had the teaching ministry of Paul, the apostle, strong in the word, from from Genesis all the way through the entire Old Testament text, and one who was given the office of prophet, bringing much of the New Testament word of God to us, if he was there teaching them, discipling them for 18 months, and that church still went on to such evils as we see division and flagrant lawlessness, and going to, going to secular courts against each other. I mean, the church was a real mess. If that happened after Paul preached to them for 18 months and discipled them, how much more so do we need God's word taught to us day by day? Especially if we consider the cultural comparison, are we less likely? I mean, we, they said back then it was to Corinthianize this vast world of adultery and fornication and just lewdness beyond description that took place. The Roman Empire called it to Corinthianize because it was so prevalent there. Perhaps we could even call it to Americanize in today, today's world. I don't know. Maybe I'm stretching it. But perhaps that could be said to be true. So brothers and sisters, would you be faithful to God's calling in your life instead of giving way to fear and devilish deceptions? Look to Christ once again today. Trusting in His presence and in His power and His promises to surround you and to guide you into His will day by day. He'll give you the courage you need. He'll give you the wisdom that you need in each situation along the way. And know that this requires the deep work of God in us by His Spirit and by His Word. This is not purely an intellectual activity. This is going to require ongoing sanctification and transformation of our souls by God's work. And uh, it's a great joy to be involved in this together with you, brothers and sisters. This is what He's doing in our lives. So, in summary, a few questions. What are your heart's idols? Perhaps you could list those in your mind right now. The things that are your idols. And you'll know this because these are the areas that will be identified when you feel the greatest fear. When you feel fear, when you're drawn towards panic, that is like smoke from a fire. The fire is the idol. The smoke is the signal that God is graciously giving to you about where your soul is not in the right spot. Could it be your personal safety or, your, or maybe your health or your security, maybe your wealth, maybe your reputation, maybe your family, dreams, hopes? Did I list anything there that is in and of itself sinful or wrong? No. Not a one of those things is sinful or wrong. But they can become putrid unfaithfulness if we, if we worship them instead of Christ. And, and the whole thing, your safety, your wealth, your reputation, your family, your dreams, your hopes, what we, what we desire for this church, all of it will have an aroma, an unpleasant aroma, if that's the case. Can you trace your fears back to your idols? Have you ever thought of that before? That's a good exercise. Trace your fears back to your idols. And then ask yourself, is, is, is my fear, is this idolatry and the fear that comes from it causing me to shrink back from love and faithfulness to Christ? Right? Because, you know, when you get to that point, there's nothing you can do to change yourself. But you can pray. You can ask the Lord to help you.
And he delights to help us. He delights to unseat these weak and um, powerless things from our souls. And to bring us back to the point of being stewards. So we just put these things to work for his kingdom and leave the results in his hands. And in that is where we get into worship, brothers and sisters. When you worship Christ, when your heart is filled up with him, and your mind is once again marveling at his glory and his majesty and his suffering for you upon the cross and his great resurrection from the dead and his enthronement at God's right hand and the outpouring of his Holy Spirit since the day of Pentecost whereby he is bringing in all of his people and none can stop him. When you worship and adore and praise him and give him thanks, do you not sense the idols falling and the fear fading away from your soul. Unto this ongoing abiding in Him. I, I do. I have. And I hope you have as well. It is the sweetest thing when He speaks peace to our souls. So may we seek the Lord to give us pure hearts, to enlarge our hearts, not just purify them, but in the process enlarge them so we may experience greater and greater amounts of His presence and love with each passing day. All for His glory, for His kingdom, that He may increase and we may de decrease, and all the world would know Him and love Him and praise Him. Let us pray. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, O Lord God, we acknowledge to You that indeed we are sinful creatures, and that uh, until we are glorified, we will always be bumping into uh, our hearts as little idol-making factories. And yet we rejoice, O oh God, that you are greater than our sinful hearts. And we look to you again this day. And we uh, acknowledge these idols and these fears. Uh, we acknowledge that we've been cowardly. And we ask you to forgive us. We confess this sin to you, O oh God. And we ask you to pour out your spirit upon us. And like they prayed uh, there shortly after Pentecost, that you would bless us with boldness, with the peace of a calmed soul that walks forward in simple, loving obedience and wisdom and courage for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.